This is episode number 350, The Expectation Effect, with author David Robson. Welcome to The Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about high performance and well-being, and I'm your host, Sonia. And if you're new around here, I am a world and multi-time national champion in mountain biking, and I still race professionally. I'm a health and mental performance coach, a writer, a mom of two little kids, and I own my own business. And if you're not new around here, welcome. I'm so glad that you're back, and I'm so grateful that you are a part of this awesome community and that we get to learn and grow together. And I think you can actually like interrogate like why you're feeling anxious. And it's probably because like the event really matters to you. And it probably matters to you partly because it's not certain that you're going to perform well. Like if you knew you were going to win the race, the race would be too easy. If you knew you were going to pass the exam without even trying, it wouldn't really be an achievement. So I think actually like just recognizing that the anxiety is there because something is personally meaningful and that actually it is what makes life exciting. It's facing things that have some level of uncertainty and overcoming them. You know, that is what makes life day-to-day more meaningful and exciting to us. And rather than seeing the anxiety as your enemy, just seeing it as like the engine of growth, I think that's incredibly powerful. Today's podcast episode is brought to you by Prevenex, whose mission is to create health. Prevenix makes the highest quality multivitamins and supplements that are pharmaceutical grade and research backed. A key part of my daily routine is taking their multivitamin. I'd never miss it. Since switching to Prevenix about six months ago, I have had the most steady energy and best health and best energy for my training. I also take their Joint Health Plus and despite adding in a lot of mileage for running and trail running, I have not had any joint issues. Not only does Prevenix make the highest quality supplements that you can get, but they are a mission-driven company. I became fast friends with the CEO and founder of Prevenix, David Block, and he's also been a podcast guest where we talked about identity, remaining flexible as you carve your path, what it means to live a values-based life, and everything that you want to know about supplements and vitamins, including why they have such high percentages. So you can check that out in the show notes. So back to Prevenix being a mission-driven company. Did you know that 3.1 million children under the age of five die each year due to malnutrition? And it is the leading cause of death for children in this age group. And 45% of these deaths are caused by poor nutrition, not hunger, which means these children are not receiving adequate vitamins, minerals, and nutrients. So Prevenix has taken action, and for every purchase you make, they provide a bottle of vitamins to a child in need. So if you've gotten out of the habit of taking your multivitamin, or maybe the one you're taking just isn't doing it for you anymore, or you want to try some of their other very impactful products, go to Prevenix.com and use the code SONIA15 to get 15% off your first order. They also stand behind their products and have a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if for some weird reason you don't feel the benefits that I have felt, then you can get your money back. And again, go to Prevenex.com, P-R-E-V-I-N-E-X.com and use the code SONIA15 to get 15% off your first order. I'm super excited about today's episode because expectations is such a big part of our lives. And if you recall, I did a solo episode that was a deep dive on how to set expectations that we will link up in the show notes. And it's something that comes up again and again. In my research for doing that solo episode on expectations, I came across a book called The Expectation Effect, which is what today's podcast is about. And I am excited to introduce you to David Robson because His book is fantastic, and it shows how whenever we set expectations for things, it can actually change the outcome. Managing expectations is a huge topic that comes up with many of my coaching clients and even in my own life as an athlete and with all of the projects that I work on. Expectations and children is another big one in our lives. Before we get into it, I'll give you a quick update as to how I'm doing. So I'm so excited to have my energy back and to be back at it again. I got COVID with all of the travel that I did last month, and I believe that Sea Otter Classic in California was to blame for that because a lot of people ended up getting COVID from that event. And that is really disappointing to have that happen, and that meant that I couldn't do the 50K trail running race that I had been training for for months. And I also couldn't do a six-hour mountain bike race that I had been planning to do. And coming back to expectations, how do I shift my expectations around myself, around 
what my goals were and around having to start over again with my training for what seems like the millionth time. And I do that by using gratitude. I am so excited that I get to do the work again and that I feel good again. And we like signing up for events because it gives us something to shoot for, but it also creates purpose and routine in our lives. So I'm really excited to continue building upon all the things that I've been working on. And for some upcoming events this summer, I have a couple of races in BC, uh, running and mountain biking in June. And then I'm going to start traveling again in July. I am going to a wedding in San Francisco. I'm going to be doing the High Cascades 100 mountain bike race that I did last year as my first race back with my daughter four months postpartum. So it's fun to go back to that race again this year now with my daughter who will be 16 months old at that point and to tackle that race again. That was an eye opener because I hadn't raced my bike in three years because of pandemics and pregnancies and to rip off the bandaid and jump into a hundred mile race. Well, that was a challenge. I did well at the race, but during the race, I was thinking to myself, I'm never racing another hundred mile mountain bike race ever again. And of course, that isn't true. And lo and behold, here I am. I can't wait to get back to the community in Bend, Oregon, and I'll be doing another presentation on mental fitness while I'm there. After that, I'll be doing a 35K trail running race called Buck in Hell in Vancouver. And it is infamous for being one of the hardest trail running races. A 35K really runs like a 50K. So that's going to be a fun adventure. And I'm hoping that I can stay healthy for that. And that will take us into August. And I don't want to go into too much detail about all the races for the rest of the year because there are lots. But one thing I did want to put on your radar is an event that I am hosting called the Women's Cycling Summit. And it is in conjunction with the Breck Epic in Breckenridge, Colorado. It'll be August 14th to the 16th. And the mission is to help women overcome limiting beliefs to progress on the bike and beyond. And this is more of a conference setting with rides. So we're going to have workshops, we're going to have speakers, but we're also going to have, like I said, mountain bike rides, tech clinics and nutrition clinics and a lot more. So if you're interested in this, and then maybe you can sign up and do the three-day Breck Epic with me after the Women's Cycling Summit, or maybe you want to do the full Breck Epic, check us out at womenscyclingsummit.com. And I can't wait to see you there. If you're thinking, wait a minute, this is a lot of stuff for me to keep up with. You can sign up for my monthly newsletter at sonnylooney.com slash newsletter. It was a weekly newsletter for about two years, and now it has been more of a monthly newsletter so that I can stay consistent and stay on top of it to bring you the highest quality content on mental performance and well-being. I am also taking on a couple of clients for the summer in my health and wellness coaching. I am a national board certified health and wellness coach, and I'm also a mental performance coach. So if you are wanting to close the gap from where you are now to where you want to be and you want some support, I am here for you. And I've worked with many top achievers, but you don't have to be an athlete. You don't have to be a top achiever. You just have to be somebody who is committed to growth. And most of my coaching relationships are three months to six months long. So looking forward to connecting with you and helping you pursue all of these great goals. Okay, so for today's episode, how do expectations affect your mind and your body? In this week's podcast, I sat down with award-winning science writer David Robson about the expectation effect and how your expectations change how you physically and mentally react to various situations. David is the author of two books, the most recent, the main subject of this podcast, The Expectation Effect, How Your Mindset Can Transform Your Life. And he also authored the book, The Intelligence Trap in 2019. David graduated with a degree in mathematics from Cambridge University and then worked as a features editor at New Scientist. He then moved to BBC Future as a senior journalist. His work has appeared in The Guardian, The Atlantic, Men's Health, and more. A few key takeaways that you will get from today. How to overcome negative expectations. How mindset relates to expectations. How relationships affect expectations and outcomes. How to set yourself up for prime performance how to set realistic expectations, and also expectations in food. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to hit that subscribe button and to share it with your friends as that is the best way to help it find others. All right, here we go. Here is David Robson. Welcome to the show, David. Thanks so much for having me. I was so excited to find your book because expectations are such a huge part of life, whether we know it or not. So What made you start thinking about expectations and want to write a book about it? Mm, Yeah, I mean, like you say, like we carry so many of these beliefs with us about kind of, you know, how sporty we are, you know, whether we're prone to getting sick, like, you know, what's going to happen to us as we age. 
But like you say, they're actually, I describe them as being a bit like the air we breathe and like they're constantly present, but we're never aware of them. We just kind of assume that they're true and then forget about them. But actually, you know, in the expectation effect, I'm really arguing that they, you know, the beliefs in themselves are changing outcomes. And like I really got into this subject through the placebo effect. And, you know, I'm a science writer and it's kind of inevitable that I would eventually write an article about the placebo effect. But it just happened that while I was writing that article, I also started experiencing some kind of expectation effect through some drugs I was taking. So I had like depression and was put on some very standard antidepressant pills. And my uh, my doctor just kind of warned me as she was obliged to do that one of the side effects could be bad headaches. And almost immediately, I started experiencing these uh, kind of migraines every day, you know, start as soon as I got up, it was like, very difficult to focus on my work It was quite debilitating. But what I discovered when I was writing about the placebo effect, is that this often happens when people are given placebos, when they're given those sham treatments, and they might be told that, you know, they're told the benefits as well as the common side effects of the drugs they're supposed to be taking. And actually, they experience those side effects almost as regularly as the people taking the actual active drug. Now, this is known as the nocebo effect. It's the opposite of the placebo effect. It's from nocere in Latin, which means like to harm. So it's um, now a well-studied phenomenon. And I realized that, you know, that was probably what was happening to me. And that realization actually helped the pain to disappear after about a day. So it was incredibly liberating knowing that, you know, my expectations were actually creating this additional sickness that I was feeling. And from there, I just kind of dug into the research and compiled like a huge Word document of all of the exciting new findings that I came across. And after about five years, I realised that there was this big story to tell about expectations, not just in medicine, but then in sports and in diet, sleep, and even changing how we age, so our longevity can depend on our beliefs. And, And it was when I came across that, I just thought, you know, people need to know about this research. I imagine after five years, that Word document was probably pretty long. <laughs> yeah, it was. And I mean, to be honest, then it was quite amazing. I, You know, as you have to do, I wrote a proposal and the words are like, just flowed so quickly. It's like I wrote 10,000 words in a few days, just because it's like I'd amassed all of this evidence already. And somehow it had just crystallized into this uh, story that I wanted to tell. So I love that your book has so many different studies that people can refer to. And I've referred to many of them myself, because I think a lot of times we think that this is some sort of woo woo manifesting thing. Well, if I, if I think about the side effects or I think about the benefits and then they just happen, it's magic, but it's actually not magic in some way. So how does this actually work? Yeah. I mean, it's a big frustration to me that, you know, um, there has been a lot of this kind of vague positive thinking literature out there that kind of often uses kind of pseudoscience or kind of magical terms, you know, this idea of the law of attraction to describe how your beliefs can shape your life. But actually, like you said, this is all based on really robust science and it's, you know, based on very plausible, well-studied biological and psychological mechanisms. And so essentially, the new new theory of the brain sees it as this kind of prediction machine. And what scientists mean by that is that it's constantly creating these simulations of the world around us. Now, those simulations can actually shape our sensory processing. So it will actually change the way the data coming in from your eyes or your ears is processed. You know, sometimes uh, deleting the details, it doesn't think are relevant based on the simulation, sometimes actually filling in the gaps if if it's, you know, poor, ambiguous data. And it's, you know, from that, from this combination of the data and the simulation, uh, that's where your conscious perception comes from. But in addition to changing your perception, your expectations then are also going to change your behaviour. And they can also change your physiology. And that's because the simulations are you know, helping the body to prepare for the challenges that the brain thinks you're going to face. So whether that's, you know, in evolutionary history, you know, facing a predator or going on a hunt or gathering food or getting ready for courtship, you know, all of these things, the 
it makes sense for the brain to be preparing the body for that situation. And exactly the same thing is happening today. If you're just about to compete in an important event, your brain's already forming calculations about, you know, what what your body can achieve and what how it can plan out your resources so that you don't become too exhausted before the end of the event. Yeah, and taking that a step further, whenever you put so much pressure on yourself in an event, that can lead to choking. And that impacts your physiology. And it's just amazing whenever you think about your mind and how the things that you start thinking can impact how you perform and how your body feels. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I I mean, there's quite a lot of subtle research on choking, but I think, you know, one of the problems is that we can get into these ruminative, catastrophic cycles of thinking. And the same thing could happen, you know, for any important event, whether it's giving a talk or even you know taking an exam is that you your body's kind of reached this kind of level of physiological arousal which can be potentially good but then you add to that another layer of worry by kind of thinking of all the ways that things can go wrong by dwelling on the shame that you might feel if it does go wrong by uh, getting trapped in that those thoughts, which is going to reduce things like your creativity and your cognitive potential, but it also amps up the stress response. It kind of puts you into a state of panic, which is suboptimal. Like stress can be beneficial to the body for performance, but you want it to be an optimal level of stress. You don't want it to go too far. And I think that's what's happening when we're choking is that we've just kind of tipped over into a point where actually it's harming our performance. I like the story you told in the book around fear about how someone had tried to break into your apartment. And then after that, every sound that you heard, you thought that somebody was trying to break in. Right. I mean, this is an example of a perceptual expectation effect, because like I mentioned, our simulations can kind of, uh, the brain simulations, when it's acting as this prediction machine, can then shape the sensory processing. And that was very much what was happening in this case. So you know, one one night I kind of woke up and I heard the kind of front door lock open and someone pushed the door. Luckily, the chain was on so they didn't get in. But, you know, after that had happened, I was obviously on a high alert state where my brain was kind of constantly looking out for the same thing to happen again. And it would be something like my printer, you know, just randomly sometimes wakes up. I don't know why. And starts to just like move the cartridge a bit and maybe cleaning itself. <laughs> but when that would happen, it doesn't really sound like a lock turning at all. But I would be certain that someone was breaking in again and I'd kind of go running through and then, you know, find that there was no intruder. It was just the printer. And But, you know, I think this is the power of our expectations is that because my brain was expecting to hear someone break in, it had morphed those sensory signals into something that sounded very similar to you know the actual event that's a kind of funny trivial example but actually you know we see very similar things with when people are experiencing chronic pain that what's happened is that the brain has started to amplify pain signals but also then the expectation of pain and the fear of pain is then that's actually like enhancing the um pain signaling further and the way the brain interprets the pain signaling and, you know, then kind of exacerbating the agony that people are feeling. We've sort of talked about the negative expectations whenever you're scared and then you are on the lookout for other bad things to happen or when you're in pain, your body is looking for more ways to stay in pain. So what do you do whenever you're in one of these negative loops to get out of it and to realize either the reality or to just change your expectations around it? But not just imagining something is going to be better, but actually doing the right thing. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, it really depends on the situation. But the research shows there are good ways that we can kind of shift the brain's predictions to reduce our discomfort in whatever situation that we're facing. You know, to give just a few examples, if someone is suffering from social anxiety, they you know, have this expectation that people are going to be more hostile to them than they really are. And that actually then changes kind of their visual attention. So, you know, they're more likely to see the negative faces in a crowd. Now, those negative faces might not be, you know, people might be in bad moods for all kinds of reasons. It doesn't have to be directed towards them. But, you know, and I've suffered from social anxiety myself, so I know what this is like. But you're 
your eyes naturally go to those people. And that's obviously going to then lower your mood and it becomes this kind of vicious cycle. But there is evidence that in that case, you can do this kind of brain training where you can actually just try to encourage people to look for positive signals instead in the surroundings. So, you know, on these apps that you can try, there might be a sea of faces and you have to focus more on the smiling faces in the task rather than the frowning faces. And that just kind of reprimes the brain to kind of be more balanced in what it's looking for. And that can then reduce those levels of anxiety. So that that is one way of doing this. More generally, say with pain management, we can really try to break those catastrophizing thoughts that can often make our pain so much worse. One of the scientists that I spoke to, she said that when we catastrophize our pain, it's like pouring gasoline on the pain signals. You know, it's so powerful actually, uh, you know, making the situation so much worse for us. So what you want to do is to break that. And it's not by ignoring the discomfort that you're feeling, but it's much more about just questioning your assumptions about, you know, what that pain means. And, you know, when when I was having those bad migraines, for example, you know, I kept on thinking like maybe I had like an allergic reaction to the pills and actually, you know, there was something seriously wrong with my brain chemistry. And I might tell myself that, um, you know, this pain is never going to end or I can't cope with this pain. It's never going to get better. Now, that is the kind of catastrophizing that I'm talking about. And then you could take it another level and you might start to, you know, think about all of the bad things that are going to happen because of that pain. You know, you might worry that you're going to, you know, miss all of your deadlines or you might worry that you're going to, you know, miss an important family event. Now, the trick really with this is to try to nip the catastrophic thinking in the bud, essentially. So to just be, first of all, to be aware of when it's happening, to notice those patterns, and then to question those assumptions. Again, you're not telling yourself a kind of unrealistic story that the pain doesn't exist, but you're just questioning, you know, is it fair for me to say that the pain will never go away? Or have I had a similar migraine in the past that, you know, vanished within 24 hours or 48 hours. You know, lots of people experience migraines without any neurological problems. The most likely thing if you have a migraine is not that you have a serious neurological condition. You know, reminding yourself of all of these things and just questioning, you know, your worst case scenario thinking, um, that can prevent the catastrophic thinking. And it just, it's been shown that it can you know, significantly reduce people's symptoms and speed up their recovery. Yeah, I think a lot of us listening can relate. I I, I definitely catastrophize. <laughs> I did a running, a trail running race uh, in February and I actually got a migraine during the race. And I started thinking things like, oh, oh my. my gosh, like I, I probably am having, you know, there's something wrong with my brain and da, 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 da. And it just started going down the path. And it was such a reminder that it's important to come back to the present moment because all those things haven't happened yet. Those are just fears that they will happen. And that using the curiosity piece, asking those questions. Um, I don't know if you've seen Dr. Judd Brewer's work, but he uses curiosity um, as an antidote to, to habit loops such as worrying because it actually engages a different part of your brain and takes you out of that fear-based rumination. Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, another way, you know, that you can kind of reappraise discomfort is to kind of try to look at it almost like a scientist, you know, just asking like, what objectively is going on here? Like, what, how can I test it as well? You know, like what, you know, what are its causes? Just thinking about it very factually. And that's actually something that, you know, you can do, anyone can do when they're kind of on a run, even if you're just, you know, working out on the treadmill and, you know, your performance has dropped for some reason that you don't understand and you already start to feel exhausted or, out, you know, far too out of breath or whatever. You know, we all have those bad days. But actually, rather than then, like, focusing on the drop in performance and telling yourself, like, you must be losing your fitness or, <laughs> you know, there's something wrong with your heart or, you know, all of these things that you can be, uh, start agonising about, just kind of objectively, you know, dispassionately kind of observing and describing what goes on and kind of probing it, you know, asking yourself to describe it in even more detail, you know, that can actually just be a useful way of taking some of the sting out of the discomfort. And, you know, you might find that then actually you recover much more quickly from 
that temporary blip rather than it being prolonged for too long. Yeah. And I think that we can tend to blame ourselves whenever things are going wrong. Like you might have said, oh, I saw the side effects. Now I'm experiencing the side effects. Well, it's my fault because I've been thinking about it. Or, you know, my kid is sick and now I thought maybe I had a little bit of a sore throat and now I'm sick. So now it's my fault because I'm getting sick. So in terms of expectations, how do you work with those types of thoughts whenever they do happen to you? Yeah, no, we always want to avoid kind of shame and guilt. And this is something that we're just not very good at recognizing as a society. In fact, I think in the UK and definitely, um, or probably in the US, it's the same. That um, There's the sense that if you're like self-critical, that you're actually more committed in some way, like you hold yourself to high standards. And it's like, and part of that is to kind of punish yourself if you're not, you know, if things aren't going the way that they should, even if that is something as silly as like catching COVID and then telling yourself off for having caught a virus that no one in the world has been able to avoid. But I know friends who felt really guilty from having caught COVID. You know, similarly, I think, you know, if you're having you know a bad day at the gym, you can start blaming yourself for you know not having slept well the night before, or you know for not having done enough workouts the previous week. You know all of that isn't helpful at all. Actually, the research shows that practicing self-compassion is far more productive. So people who you know are kind to themselves and recognise that there are lots of other factors around that might be influencing you know the situation you're in today, like. Um, you know, you might have just had a really shitty day at work and then you've gone to the gym and your bad mood is actually having an impact on your motivation and how well you're able to sustain your stamina. Well, that's not your fault that you're you're not able to control every circumstance within your life and just recognising that and being kind to yourself. You know, that's going to actually be much better for maintaining your commitment and for making sure that you return to the gym again and again, rather than if you're self-critical, you're much more likely to kind of give up and to to not stay committed. So actually just giving ourselves some slack is really important. And it just reduces our stress responses. You know, it just makes sure that we're psychologically healthier and, you know, as a result, physically healthier. Yeah, I think that putting yourself in the right state of mind helps, but that doesn't necessarily control, like that was a great word you used. It doesn't control every single situation just because you have an expectation. No, and that's what, you know, I was a bit worried about, or I was conscious of that possibility coming up when I wrote the book, that some people might think that it's like, you know, if if I fail, it's because I don't have the right mindset. And I'm to blame for that. And that's not the case at all. Like having the right mindset can definitely help you achieve a lot more than having the wrong mindset. But it doesn't, it's not, it's not foolproof in that there could be other lots of other reasons why, you know, things don't go the way you'd like. And you actually have to be kind to yourself about that and to recognize that, you know, you can learn from the event, like the perceived failure, like you can still kind of analyze what went wrong. But you don't have to feel guilt or shame over that. You can just see it as another point in your overall journey. And rather than kind of becoming too focused on that particular point, just think about the overall trajectory and where you want to get to, you know, the next day, the next week or the next year. So we've talked about some negative impacts of expectations. So let's switch gears here and talk about some of the more beneficial impacts of having positive or um, hopeful expectations. I think a fun place to start would be with sports. And there are some really interesting studies that you gave simply by just what people were told and how that impacted their performance and what they believed about themselves. Can you, yeah, can you talk I about mean, that? <laughs> right. Are you thinking of the study the where people were told about their kind of genetic predisposition yeah. for sports? Because that, yeah, that appealed to me a lot because, you know, I'd always assumed myself that I didn't have good kind of sports genes because, you know, I was quite young in my year at school. And so, you know, physical education lessons were always a bit of a challenge. You know, I was never going to be like um, as good as the kind of taller kids, essentially. But like, you know, the the researchers showed that actually your, like your expectations can be as powerful as things like your genes. So they looked specifically at this uh, gene called CREB1, which 
is implicated in uh, things like endurance during exercise. If you have the kind of so-called like good version of the gene, it just makes exercise a bit more comfortable. It reduces the perceived exertion. It changes things like your core body temperature as you're exercising. If you have the good version, you're a bit cooler. You're not getting so kind of hot and flustered. Uh, So it's important. But the researchers gave these participants the real genetic test and then gave them sham feedback. So someone with the good version might be told they had the bad version, vice versa. And then they were told to do this endurance test on the treadmill. And they found that actually the expectations from that sham feedback independently predicted all kinds of markers, their performance, including their endurance, but also things like the gas exchange within the lungs. And actually, when it came to those physiological changes, quite amazingly, the expectations were more important than the genes. So the genes did have an effect, but the expectations had even more of an effect on how efficiently they were exchanging oxygen for carbon dioxide. So if we go back to someone like me who has expectations of my own fitness based on, you know, something that's no longer relevant, which was how fast I could run, you know, when I was 11 or 12. Well, actually, that shows us that we really need to just question those assumptions again. And we should, you know, we by being overly negative about our own fitness, that can be really limiting. And it's not just limiting in our motivation, it's that it actually could potentially limit physiologically how we respond to the exercise and our performance. And so just having that more open-minded attitude, you know, questioning, well, like, am I as bad as I think? Or actually, am I like, almost every human in the world? And can I just get better the more I exercise? You know, having that more positive view of our bodies, that's going to make the experience of the exercise more pleasant, and it's going to bring about greater gains when you do work out. I think this is also really interesting from a coaching perspective, because if you tell your athlete, you know, you're, you probably aren't going to do very well at this, or you're not as good as, you know, whoever, or if somebody's in a race and you give them wrong information, all of those things can impact somebody's performance. And so it's so important to have the right type of people around you whenever you are looking for support and guidance and mentorship, because the expectations that you have of yourself can come from some of the things that they say to you. Yeah, absolutely. And I also think it should change the way we look at you know, social media and things like, um, you know, fitspiration posts, because uh, there was a really good study <laughs> from Australia that um, looked at, you know, whether fitspiration is actually inspirational for people working out. Um, so they looked at all of these, you know, images of people like being incredibly fit and healthy, looking great, and then got them to kind of go on the treadmill and actually work out themselves. <laughs> and they found that, um the compared to people who looked at like pretty travel videos, potentially like increased their perceived exertion during the exercise. So it felt harder after they'd seen the fitness pictures and they enjoyed it a lot less. Their mood actually, they didn't get the same level of like mood boost that the people who'd looked at the travel pictures that weren't really relevant to the exercise. And the problem there is this social comparison. If you're looking at someone who's like who you think is better than you now that might be a source of motivation but you're also making yourself feel that you're inadequate in some way it's kind of reducing your perception of what you personally can achieve and are capable of because you don't feel you're as good as the other person and it's that that then changes things like the perceived exertion and ultimately makes the the exercise feel more exhausting and less rewarding because you've added this element of competition that uh, that's kind of screwed with your brain's predictions. Yeah, I think that if somebody thought that they were really close to the person that they were viewing, like I'm just thinking about some of the visualizations yeah. that I use in sport whenever I'm training. If I imagine I'm racing somebody who is similar to me, then I actually perform better. But if I'm imagining somebody who's way out front that I'll never catch, then I might perform worse. So the visualization of you know, what you're doing and who you're, who's in your visualization can really impact your performance. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And there's definitely research showing that people do perform better, even than their personal best, if you're competing against, you know, other people compared to just kind of, you know, running by yourself, because it is useful to, you know, if there's someone who's very close to you, but just ahead, that kind of, that can change your brain's predictions to be 
to consider, well, actually, yeah, I am capable of that too. But if the disparity is just too great, then like you say, it's actually it's making you feel worse about your own performance and you it feels like a futile task. And so that is then that's going to change what your brain's simulations are doing. And essentially, again, what the simulations, how they're controlling your performance here is that they're working, it's trying, the brain's trying to work out, you know, how many resources it's worth putting into this exercise. And, you know, if you feel that it's futile, and you're never going to catch up with that person, or if you look at this other person who's incredibly fit, and that makes you feel incredibly unfit, then it, it suggests that, like, you might reach exhaustion more quickly, and you're not going to get the reward at the end. So it actually starts pulling back on what it allows the body to do. And then that harms your performance. So how does somebody set themselves up for prime performance so that they have a lower perception of effort and they also believe that they're capable? So I do love your idea of, you know, looking for someone who's similar, but just a little bit better than you. I think that's a really good way of increasing your performance. I think, you know, again, like what we shouldn't be doing is like going to the gym for the first time and start imagining like visualizing ourselves being like an Olympic athlete if we're kind of nowhere near that level of performance because it's just going to be demoralizing when you mm. kind of when the reality hits home. But yes, yeah, small changes in your expectations, just kind of tweaking them to be a bit more optimistic. That's great. That's definitely going to help. I think also just like reappraising the kind of symptoms that we're feeling as we're exercising, you know, those like you know, little aches and pains that you get, you know, if you do notice that your heart rate has increased, or you're feeling a bit out of breath, just reminding yourself that all of these things were a sign of growth, that they're actually necessary to improve your performance, rather than getting caught up in the catastrophic thinking of maybe worrying that they're a sign of your lack of fitness and focusing on them as almost as a as evidence of failure. I think that's another really important way that we can reframe our exercise and, you know, make it more enjoyable and boost our performance. What's a good mental state to get in, say, before, like, if you're going to give a big um, speech somewhere, like a keynote speech, or maybe before this podcast, maybe I was a little bit nervous thinking, I want this to go well, you know, where should I set my expectations so that I show up in a way that is going to help the situation instead of harm the situation? And this also applies to a start line in sports. Right, exactly. So this is something that I use all the time. And it's, it is about when you feel those nerves, and it can be re relevant, like you say, for any situation, but I use it um, for public speaking, which was something I really used to dread. Um, when I first started writing my first book and had to start giving talks, you know, it was, it was an ordeal that I felt like I had to get through, but it's certainly not something that I would have chosen to do if, <laughs> if I didn't feel like it was important for the book success. And it's simply to start thinking about your anxiety and the symptoms of anxiety in a more positive light, like I just suggested with the experiences of exercise. But, um, you know, in our culture, we view stress as being inherently debilitating. And that's because we often push ourselves too far into that um, suboptimal stress state where um, when we're almost in a state of physiological panic rather than useful physiological arousal. But just reminding ourselves that actually a lot of the things that you might experience when you're stressed and anxious, things like that racing heart, you know, that's an evolved response uh, because, you know, it's meant to be beneficial if it's in the, uh, to the right degree. You know, that the uh, heart racing is pumping oxygen around your body. If you're in a sports event, it's, you know, getting your, you know, your muscles kind of filled with fuel, filled with oxygen, ready for the start of the race. You know, even when I'm public speaking, uh, what it's doing is it's pumping all of that oxygen to my uh, brain and it's making sure that I can think on my feet and, you know, be really focused. And, you know, the jangling in your your muscles, that kind of nervy feeling, well, that's, you know, partly caused by the cortisol um, that's in your blood. But that, again, is just raising your alertness. And actually, in, you know, moderate levels and moderate elevation of cortisol is incredibly useful to make sure that you're kind of focusing on the things that really matter. And what the researchers found was that just changing people's perception of the anxiety in this way to recognize that it can have an advantage 
well, that became a self-fulfilling prophecy. So actually, even when they did feel highly anxious, those uh, people still perform much better, whether that's in these graduate examinations that they were testing, or whether that's in public speaking, or in sports events, you know, in all these cases, they were turning the anxiety to their advantage in a way that they hadn't been able to do previously, without trying to suppress the anxiety, but just by viewing it as an adaptive response. Yeah, this reminds me a lot of Kelly McGonigal's work in The Upside of Stress and just saying, and I think you mentioned this in your book as well, instead of saying, oh, I'm so nervous, like, oh, these feelings are so bad, like I'm freaked out, saying, I'm excited, I'm ready, like these feelings are getting me ready so that I can be my best, instead of these feelings are going to make me choke, these feelings are going to make me perform worse. Yeah, that's exactly it. And, you know, and I think you can actually like interrogate like why you're feeling anxious. And it's probably because like the event really matters to you. And it probably matters to you partly because you know it's not certain that you're going to perform well. Like if you knew you were going to win the race, it the race would be too easy. If you knew you were going to pass the exam without even trying, it wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't really be an achievement. So I think actually like, you know, just recognizing that the anxiety is there, you know, because something is personally meaningful and that actually it is what makes life exciting. It's facing, you know, things that we, that have some level of uncertainty and overcoming them, you know, that is what makes life day to day more meaningful and exciting to us. And, you know, it's all, it's rather than seeing the anxiety as your enemy, just seeing it as like the engine of growth. I think that's incredibly powerful. This also makes me think about setting expectations. So you're you're about to give a speech like I hope I hope people are going to love it or or you could say I'm going to be the most awesome speaker everybody's ever ever heard. You're lining up for a race. I'm definitely going to win this race. Whenever you set the expectations that high, you might be thinking, well, because of what I heard on this podcast, if I believe that I'm going to win this thing or I'm going to be the best ever, well, then I'm going to be the best ever. But there is a gray area there and a pretty big gray area of what is realistic. So what do you tell people about being realistic, but also creating a situation so that you can perform at your best? Yeah, I mean, we have to be realistic. And, you know, partly this again comes down to the fact that like we can't control everything, certainly not just with our mindsets. So, you know, you can put like students in the exam hall and you can teach them about the benefits of their anxiety. But if, you know, if a student in that exam hall just has not studied and doesn't have the factual material committed to memory, like the mindset intervention isn't going to be able to make up for like, you know, the lack of work that they've put in. So mindset interventions are never going to be a replacement for the the other stuff that we also know is important for the success in the event that we're, you know, taking part in. And so that's one reason why, you know, we shouldn't become over-reliant on expectations and set our expectations too high if, like, what we're really dreaming of isn't actually a serious possibility. But, you know, with also with doing that, I just think it's like it's kind of, it's like you're setting yourself up for disappointment if you're always trying to be the best and that's not realistic or, you know, and once you're disappointed by that, then I think that could actually backfire and create this kind of uh, vicious cycle, essentially. So you'll then, because of the disappointment afterwards, you're going to be maybe more nervous the next time you give a talk because it's been, you know, a brutal experience to you. So that's why I would never say that we should, you know, try to kind of believe in the unrealistic in a way that might be encouraged by something like, you know, books on manifesting, for example. But, you know, that doesn't mean, so what should we do? Well, I think like, it's just bringing it up to this sweet point where you're like raising your expectations, you're kind of contracting the negative expectations, overly negative expectations. You're thinking about some of the positives that might come out of the event and, you know, a, a good kind of likely scenario you might even leave yourself open to that like amazing result that's a small possibility, but you're not focusing solely on that. You're kind of acknowledging the full range of possible outcomes and trying to put more of your attention like right there in the middle, in the kind of the kind of comfortable zone uh, that's neither too negative nor too positive. That's how I see it. And I think that's definitely how the researchers see it. And again, it's all about looking at trajectories as well. So, you know, if my public speaking, like I didn't go 
when I started reappraising my mindset, I didn't think oh, I'm going to be like super charismatic. I just thought my stress is not as debilitating as I thought it might be. I can probably get through this and actually this stress might be helpful to me in preparing like my body and my mind for me to give this talk and to present what I know. And maybe the next time I can do it a little bit better. And then that's what you do. You kind of, you know, it, it worked exactly like that for me. That um I actually found that, you know, I the event was a bit less stressful when and less kind of uncomfortable and distressing when I'd reframe my stress. And then the next time I could kind of draw on that memory of the kind of more pleasant talk that I gave the previous time to reset my expectations for the next talk. And like over time, it just got better and better and better. And so now when I, I give a talk, you know, I don't feel sick beforehand. I don't kind of have that dread going out on stage. I do feel just kind of excited when I'm giving the talk, you know, I do feel oxygenated. It's like I have just been working out or been for like a pleasant, you know, quick walk around the park rather than facing a physical ordeal. Um, and that to me is a success. You know, that's how I want to feel when I'm giving a talk, essentially. Um, and so, yeah, that's what I think my advice would be is to focus on the trajectory, go step by step, you know, slowly moving perhaps out of your comfort zone, but don't immediately expect a miracle to happen because that could lead to disappointment. Yeah, it sounds like the predictions that your brain is making when you shift it towards what's what's achievable within your control and on your process instead of how the audience is going to perceive what I'm going to say or how you can't control the outcome of a race at all. And if you look at your preparation, you look at your past positive experiences and say, now I can form a, a realistic expectation based on those things, not on what I hope happens. Yeah, I think that's exactly how it should be. And it's also about just thinking like, given the circumstances that I'm in at the moment, I can do the best that I possibly could. That doesn't mean that there won't be another person who's going to run quicker than me. And it doesn't mean that there won't be someone in the audience who has for some arbitrary reason taken a real dislike to me. Like I can't stop there being people in the world who don't like me. But what I can do is make sure that I'm prepared and then that I'm using my anxiety or you know the stress response in the most productive way to make sure that you know I will at least do as well as I can and then you know hopefully that will be enough to achieve my goal but that's the best I can kind of hope for and not staring at the one person in the audience yawning thinking they're bored with you <laughs> well i mean that is actually that's another benefit of reappraising your this stress response in this way. When people are taught about the adaptive benefits of stress, it actually does shift their uh, the perceptual focus too. So people are less likely to do that, to focus on the, the person who's yawning, and they're more likely to see the faces of people who are smiling or nodding along. So yeah, you know, psychologically and physiologically, it's very beneficial. I wanted to move on to talking about the the food part of the book, because that's something that I had never heard of before. Specifically, the things around descriptions around what the food is, you know, if a food is indulgent or not, or if a food is low calorie or not, and how that impacts you. Can you so can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, so we've known for quite a while that, um, you know, our psychology plays a huge role in things like appetite. And we knew this from amnesic patients who, uh, because of brain damage, they were unable to form new memories. So what you could do is you could give these patients a meal and they would eat it quite happily and then you take the plate away and by the time you've brought a second plate of dinner they would have completely forgotten that they'd eaten and they would quite happily eat that plate of food too without even registering a change in their appetite because and that really shows that you know even though we have all these sensors in our guts that do kind of measure what's you know what we've consumed that data is really ambiguous so our psychology is and our memories are providing this kind of context to that which is then shaping how it reads that data and ultimately determining our appetite so we knew that it was important but what this research really showed was that actually it changes things like our hormonal response to the food we eat as well so even something as simple as the labeling on a milkshake can determine the levels of the hunger hormone ghrelin. Now, when we eat normally, you know, if you have a big meal, ghrelin should 
it should rise temporarily because you know like you feel hungry when you see the delicious food and then it should drop dramatically because once you've eaten you'd no longer need to seek new food so um ghrelin's all about stimulating appetite and you have that rise and then fall after a meal what these researchers did was they measured people's ghrelin on two separate occasions while they were eating milkshakes now the milkshakes contents were exactly the same but the labeling was completely different on one it looked like it was this kind of indulgent decadent milkshake you know the emphasis was all on the flavors and the full fat milk and the ice cream that had gone into it um on the other it was the it was labeled as this kind of sensible health shake that was like no fat no sugar low calories but also like no taste or satisfaction either like there was nothing there to make it seem desirable and that you know that that difference really shaped the ghrelin response when people had the decadent indulgent milkshake when the labeling suggested all of those things the ghrelin rose and fell exactly as it should do after a big meal for people when the people had the uh, sensor shake uh, the ghrelin just barely changed at all despite the fact that the nutritional content was exactly the same in both cases the hormonal response seemed to de- depend entirely on their expectations of whether the food was going to be satisfying or whether it was going to be you know it was just there just as a kind of sensible sensible uh, kind of health supplement now that's you know i think that's the worst nightmare if you're dieting is that you're actually consuming you know a milkshake that has got quite a few calories in it you think that you're doing that because it's going to offset your hunger but because it's got all because you don't think it's going to be satisfying really it's actually leaving your ghrelin levels at the uh, at the level they were before so you're still going to have those hunger pangs later on you're still going to have that appetite being stimulated so it's you know incredibly important this result i think for you know for dieters everywhere to realize that actually their expectations of what they're going to eat will determine how satisfied they feel about that meal and whether they are going to snack later on smiling because i've eaten a plant-based diet for a really long time and people always that that haven't tried any plant-based foods are like oh like you're going to be hungry how are you not hungry all the time and gosh the food tastes terrible and they have all of these expectations as to how it actually is and then they'll try something that i made and they're like wow this actually tastes really good and i actually feel full after this and it's just amazing how we play tricks on ourselves but holding that i wanted to ask about people who are trying to lose weight and maybe they do look at you know a healthier meal and they do assign these words it's just amazing how powerful mm. words are. I'm not going to feel satisfied. I'm not going to feel good. If they just tell themselves, well, now I'm going to, this This is a fancy whatever meal I'm going to feel super good. They're just, but they don't truly believe it. How do you frame the story to yourself so that it it is real for you and that you actually see results? Yeah, I mean, I think that is always going to be an issue if you're only, when you're dieting, if you're only choosing foods purely for the low calorie content. I really I think we should avoid choosing like something bland just because it doesn't have many calories in like you know try to find an alternative that has like something that really stimulates your appetite so it could just be you know that it's got like a you know that it's extra spicy or you know something like having like anchovies in like um a dish can really give it like that strong umami flavor that might just um feel a little bit more satisfying to someone even if it doesn't add many calories um you know whatever it could be the texture the taste you know focusing on like the quality of the ingredients you know all of these things i think can help us to feel that the meal that we're having is a celebration that is not just you know this kind of very bland kind of goop that we're eating just for survival <laughs> uh because i think that when you're in that mindset that you're eating it purely to lose weight but for no benefit no pleasure at all you know that is putting you into that mindset of deprivation that's not going to be good for dieting so yeah choosing our foods a bit more carefully and really considering like the pleasure and satisfaction you know that should be especially important when you're dieting it shouldn't be something that you're ignoring it makes me think of this scene in the matrix and i'm probably going to butcher it but they're eating this goop because they are you know in the or they're out of the matrix in the real world. And one guy takes a bite. He's like, oh, this is terrible. And the other guy takes a bite. He's like, oh, this is 
you know, he makes up some, some delicious meal in his mind. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, it's very much like that. You know, I don't think we can turn like a lettuce leaf into this kind of incredible banquet just by imagining <laughs> that it's like tasty. But, you know, we all have like different, you know, foods that just are really appetizing to us. And I, you know, uh -huh. for me, like, not though I really try to lose weight, but I do try to maintain like my current weight sometimes by cutting back a bit, but it would just be like, even a bowl of broccoli can be like super satisfying if you have like a bit of chili, you know, some Parmesan cheese, you know, or some, you know, anchovies, just something to kind of give it a bit of a boost. It's like, um, it doesn't have to be, you know, I think like for me, the worst thing would be to have like a very bland health shake that's kind of gone within you know 30 seconds and didn't really have much for flavor either so yeah i think it's going to be personal for each one of us but um just looking for the things that like make us feel excited you know that's what we should be doing when we're dieting i wanted to ask again about the idea of tricking ourselves because i think in your book you said that there's pills that people will take that are placebo and they know that they're placebo when they're taking them and they still get positive benefits so like how does that actually work when you know you're tricking yourself? Because that, that kind of makes me mad to hear that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's actually quite amazing. So I think the important thing here is that often it seems to be, well, uh, let me go back. Open label placebos might have some benefit just because we feel it's a natural human response that when we're ill and then when we know that we're being cared for, when there's a kind of ritual of healing, that is actually reassuring to the brain's prediction machine that, you know, we no longer, basically like the immune system doesn't have to go into overdrive any longer because other kind of areas of our, you know, health needs are going to be fulfilled by these other people around us who are going to be bringing us food and water and caring for us, you know, keeping us warm. So it's like, it kind of reduces the initial shock of the illness or injury that you're having just to feel that you're being cared for. And open label placebos can do that because you feel, even if someone gives you these pills and you know they're placebo pills, it's like an act of kind of, of healing that, um, that might have some benefit. But personally, I don't think that's enough. That might have bring about a bit of a benefit. But like, what really seems to help is when you actually, you know, explain to people the science behind the expectation effect and you tell them that, you know, the brain's building these predictions, these simulations can then start to change things about the body itself, like the actions of the immune system and the levels of neurotransmitters in your brain and, you know, the pain signaling. You know, it's a truth that if you take a placebo pill and you believe it's morphine, then the brain actually starts to produce its own opioid drugs that can actually bring about real physiological pain relief, you know, um, actually reducing the pain uh, signaling in this kind of objective way. You know, you teach people all of this stuff about the power of the uh, the prediction machine and the mind-body connection. And they start to realize that, well, like to a certain extent, they are empowered to control things like their pain if they're injured. And then you give them these placebo pills, and it's a constant reminder of that fact. So if you tell them, take this placebo pill, and they know it's a placebo pill, but you say, take this twice a day, well, that's a reminder of their own, the brain's own ability to bring about some of this healing response. And that to me seems to be how that would work. Now, the evidence that does work is actually becoming really good. So there are multiple studies, especially with pain relief, showing that it can have real effects, you know, even for people with chronic pain, they were given these pills, along with that presentation, you know, after five days, they had experienced about a 30% drop in their symptoms, which is the clinical threshold for like a new drug. Like if, if you had a new painkiller that could produce that level of pain relief, it could be patented and sold. So it is powerful. And that's been replicated They've even found that some of these benefits can last, you know, for years afterwards. So it's really well established. And it's really exciting because it could be a way that you could wean people off some of those addictive pain relief pills and actually help them to go cold turkey, you know, if they suffer from some kind of addiction. I also thought it was so interesting. 
I had never seen this before in your book, how you talked about the way that the pill looks makes a difference on how you perceive how it's going to work for you. It does. I mean, you know, it does seem that bigger pills are better. Maybe taking two pills is better than taking one pill. You know, all of these factors can be influential, you know, and you can boost the placebo effect also by kind of adding kind of other stimuli. So having like a strong smell associated with pain relief. So if you first of all gave people their real pills along with the, and it smelled very strongly of cardamom, for example, and then you give them placebo pills, open label placebo pills that come with the same smell, that actually increases the placebo effect that they experience. So that would improve their pain relief. It's just so interesting. <laughs> So unfortunately, we're out of time here. I could talk for probably hours about all of the great information in your book and also about your other book that I'm excited to pick up. The It's called, can you tell me the title again? The Intelligence? The Intelligence Trap. Trap. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. where can people find you in your work if they want to dig into this book and to The Intelligence Trap as well? Oh, yeah. So both of those books, you know, will be available on Amazon and should be from available in Barnes and Noble. You know, any kind of big, big bookstore should have them. But you can find links and like other material on my website, which is davidrobson.me. And I'm on Twitter at D underscore A underscore Robson. Great, great. Well, thanks so much. No, thank you. I hope you enjoyed that episode on expectations. And now that's going to be a word that you're going to hear all the time. It's something that I am very focused on and something that I write about and think about often. And if you're enjoying the show, don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Leave us a five-star review as that will help the show find others. And as always, I'm with you on this journey of personal growth, adventure, and our mission to be better every day. I'll see you right back here next week. 